Great to see all of you tonight. We appreciate your being here. Be turning to John chapter 15, and we welcome all of you to our Bible study class tonight, and to all those that are viewing online. We're delighted that you're with us as well. <clears throat> Jesus is talking in John 15 to the apostles, and he is preparing them as he has been through uh, the preceding chapters, 14 and 15, for the <coughs> events that are forthcoming in the very near future. He's already told them that he would be leaving them, but he wants to prepare them for not only the treatment that he will undergo and the trials that will come to them, uh, as a result of his arrest, and we remember that they forsook him and fled and uh, were perhaps in danger of being arrested or killed themselves. But that would be nothing compared to what they would face in their work in preaching and teaching the gospel. As he would ascend back to heaven, the church would be established on the day of Pentecost, and they would meet much persecution. And so he is seeking to prepare them for not only his leaving them, but also the work that was before them uh, during the years that followed the establishment of the church. John 15 begins with that statement, I am the true vine. And I couldn't find my notes last week, but... Uh, the true light is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 9, the true bread in 632, and now the true vine in 15, verse 1. And you'll notice that he begins this with the statement, I am. And you have several I ams in the book of John. I am the bread of life, John 6, verses 35 and 48. I am the light of the world, John 8, verse 12. I am the door of the sheep, John 10, 7, and 9. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11, and 14. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11, 25. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then this final one, I am the true vine. I was thinking today, as I wrote those down, you could say that there are three I am's in one verse, John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. All of those things are preceded by the statement, I am. So Jesus makes that statement many times in the book of John which reminds us, of course, of the statement back in the Old Testament when uh, Moses asked the Lord, uh, the Father, that, you know, what shall I tell them? Who shall I tell them in Egypt uh, that sent me? And he said, I am that I am sent you. And so that statement signifies the eternal nature of God. And John began his book by saying that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Jesus has all the attributes of deity, and that is demonstrated repeatedly in the book. Chapter 15 also emphasizes the importance of abiding in Christ. Now, granted, he makes these statements to the apostles, but there's a great lesson for all of us to learn as well. Because what was true of the apostles insofar as their need to abide in Christ is true of all of us. Everyone who is a Christian is in Christ. Well, every faithful Christian is considered to be a faithful Christian in Christ. We are baptized to get into Christ. Uh, we are told to believe, to repent, and confess. But I don't know of any passage that says specifically and pointedly that we believe into Christ, or we repent into Christ, or we confess into Christ. But we are said to be baptized into Christ. And so... Salvation is a process that begins in the hearing of the word, which should produce faith, leading us to turn from a life of sin and to confess our faith in Christ and then to be immersed into him. You've heard me use the illustration before. Uh, my first teacher taught us this. You come to the building and then you come into the building. You're not in the building simply by coming to the building. You get into the building by coming in through the door, making an entrance. She was trying to help us understand the difference between in and into and all of that. And I've heard gospel preachers for as long as I can remember emphasize those very truths, we are baptized into Christ. There were some people who came to him during his earthly ministry, but they didn't follow him. And from all indications, they never were obedient to the faith. The rich young ruler comes to mind. He came to Jesus. He sought information from Jesus, but he turned and walked away and never became a disciple and follower of him. So if we are told to abide in Christ, it becomes very important to know how to get into him. And you'll notice that Jesus himself emphasizes abiding in him. So many statements. I have them underlined here, but I have a lot of others uh, <laughs> underlined as well. <clears throat> he said, uh, uh, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's in verse 4. Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and here is a very important statement, and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Verse 7 begins, if you abide in me. And here's an interesting statement too. And my words abide in you. 
Notice that. The emphasis is upon not only our abiding in Christ, but his words abiding in us. Is there not a correlation between the two? There's an obvious connection. If his words abide in us, it is most likely that we will abide in him. Now, I'm aware of the fact that there are a lot of people who know the Bible who are not in Christ. They know what the Bible says, but they've never chosen to follow Christ or to be baptized into him. But for those who abide in Christ, it's necessary for the words, his words, to abide in us. And then he says, uh, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Over and over again, he talks about abiding in him and abiding in his love. I want to go back just a moment because this is an old argument that has been made for many, many years uh, in the religious world by denominationalists who say that denominationalism is a good thing. Uh, they say it's a good thing because it gives people choices. And uh, you'll hear statements to the effect doesn't make any difference to which denomination you belong. You know, a church can't save you and on and on and on they go. And when asked to give proof for the scripturalness of denominationalism, they often will cite John 15 and say Christ is the vine and all the different churches are the branches and all the different denominations are branches. Uh, the word denomination means what? What? Division. A part. A denomination is a part of the whole. But the church that Jesus built is not a part of the whole. It is the whole. There's only one, isn't there, as we saw Sunday. I have another lesson coming up in a few weeks that I hope that you will study with us too in reference to the church or regarding the church. But notice what this passage says. Jesus said, I. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. Uh, is there any other vines? He says, I am the vine. And then he said, and you are the branches. Who's the you? In this case, it would be the apostles, wouldn't it? I am the vine. You are the branches. Now, notice how he shifts and begins using pronouns that denote individuals. The branches are not denominational bodies. They are individuals. What happens to a branch that is not productive? It's cut off. It withers, withers up and then it's burned. But he keeps talking about he, 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 him, him, him. Clearly, he's talking about a person, not a church, in quotation marks, not a religious body. He's talking about an individual person. Now, a case in point would be Judas became unfruitful. He left the Lord. He didn't abide in the Lord. He was the one that was unclean, as Jesus, as we saw last week. But 
Don't ever let anybody uh, tell you, you can't keep them from telling you, but just don't believe it, that the branches here represent denominations because it just doesn't. It's very evident that he's talking about an individual and that individual's relationship uh, to the Lord. But that argument has been made many, many times in debates over the years, and uh, you'll still hear it occasionally. And I just wanted to mention that so that uh, you would be prepared for it. Now, sound like to me I've gone off. Okay, let's do the back here. You find this mic up here, maybe those boys will turn me on back there. I'm not going to Somebody step in there and get their attention and see if I'm on. I used to didn't have any trouble hearing myself, but now I do. I'm glad you all heard that. I didn't hear. I heard it, but I didn't understand. So we're right at home. I ask her all the time, what'd you say? And she'll say sometimes, you can't hear it thunder or words to that effect. But anyway, thanks to, thanks, uh, Brian. I believe that was, it went in and told him to turn me on. Most people say, turn him off. Uh, John 15 verse nine. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This passage reveals a very intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. He said, the Father loved me, Jesus. I have loved you, the disciples. Abide in my love. Abiding in my love here would seem to me to suggest you love me and you love one another. And those two things are still very practical for all of us. We love Christ and put him first. And we love one another as well. And that way we will demonstrate to the world who the disciples of Christ are. What a follower of Christ is to do. Sometimes people say, well, there's a lot of folks that are not very lovable, and that's true, but you love them anyway. You love them anyway. You recognize that they're made in the image of God. Uh, they're a living soul. They have a soul that is worth more than all the world. And uh, they have their weaknesses. I have mine too. I don't know if you do or not, but I have, I have weaknesses. I think we all do, don't we? No, we do. And so we need to love people in spite of their being unlovable sometimes. You say they're just not very lovable. Well, Jesus loved people who were not very lovable because we're told that we're all sinners. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Oh, there's the way that you abide in his love. You obey him. I don't know why it is that so many religious folks today seem to think that obedience is just not important anymore. Where did they get that idea? Right. It's a matter of wanting to, isn't it? 
make the statement, uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. Okay? Yeah, I, I, I said, you know, to prove to God. Because sometimes I think, well, how do you really prove to Christ that you love him? Well, you keep the commandments. You, you do what he says, just like you would anyone that you really love. You're going to trust them. You're going to you're going to do as they say as much as you can. But I think people want to take that out of their relationship with, with God and Christ because they don't. If they take it out, then maybe they won't have to obey. Yeah. Because everybody comes to the point where, you know, real obedience is when you want to do X, but Christ says do Y. Yeah. As long as you and Christ want to do the same thing, there's not a problem. But the problem comes in when you want to do something different. That's when true obedience shows up, and, and you have to give up your ex and do what he wants you to do. And that's that's difficult for anyone. It so is. You just, you just I, I'm just, you know, I don't, I just love the Lord. I don't have to obey him. Well, I, that's not the way I see you prove you love him. He just died not too long ago. Tom T. Hall was a great songwriter. But he came out with a song entitled Me and Jesus Got Our Own Thing Going. And uh, that song became very popular during the 70s and 80s. A lot of people, that's exactly, you know, I just have a personal relationship with the Lord and I don't have to do anything else. You know, it's entirely up to me and and uh, really every individual ends up calling the shots. But that's not the way of uh, living the Christian life. Jesus, as we will see in just a few minutes, is the master, and we're the servants. And we do his will. We don't do our own will. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Do we really mean that when we sing it? piece of pottery <laughs> needs to be uh, made over sometimes. Have you ever watched anybody make pottery? They make a boo-boo? And they start reworking that material, whatever it is, I guess you call it clay. But uh, they'll rework it and they'll they'll work that that blemish out and uh, reshape it, whatever. And that's what God does with us so many times. We're not it's what we ought to be. To follow somebody when you're both got the same line of thinking. The real test comes when you want to do one thing, but the one that makes the decision wants to do another thing, and you've got to follow that 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 because they're in the driver's seat. There you go. That's right. And the one who's in the driver's seat is the Lord, remember. You know, he he's the one that leads us and directs us. So he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus is our example. Remember when He would pray in the garden sometime after this? He said, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but Thy will be done. And He prayed that same prayer three times. So that evidently was the mindset of Jesus. Going back to what Brenda said, let this mind be in you, which was also in, in him, Christ Jesus. 
That's the mind that we are to have. And he had an obedient mind. He understood the importance of that. And we need to have uh, that same mindset. And uh, he said in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Why in the world is he talking about joy in uh, view of what's about to happen? This statement is interesting when he said, These things I have spoken to you. These things appears six other times during this discourse. And it always refers to that which he has just said. And so he has just talked to them about keeping his commandments and loving him, abiding in his love. And so he said, I've spoken these things to you that your joy may remain in you and uh, that your joy may be full. Uh he had said these things uh, throughout the preceding uh, references to that to accomplish three or four purposes. We see here that he spoke these things that they might have joy. In chapter 16, we'll see that he spoke these things that they might be warned of things that were coming. That's in chapter 16, verses 1 and 4. In verse 23, or 33, rather, of chapter 16, he spoke these things that they might have peace. And so Jesus had already talked to them about the peace that he would leave with them in chapter 14, verse 17. But now he adds two other things. He, he adds love and joy. Love, joy, and peace are three wonderful blessings that all of us need. Uh, when you look at the uh, section of John that we've already studied, the only time that joy is mentioned is back in chapter 3. I believe it's verse 29. But in this farewell discourse, he mentions it several, several times. Here in 1511, it's mentioned twice. And then you will find it in chapter 16, verses 20, 21, 22, 24, and in chapter 17, verse 3. So he'll mention joy several times. And that's uh, sort of amazing to me in view of what they're going to be going through. And yet he tells them to be joyful. You think about it and you wonder, how in the world can we have any joy in a, such an imperfect world? Anybody got any thoughts about that? Or in the world, how in the world can you be joyful? I mean, I watch the nightly news sometimes and I I go to bed in trouble. I don't know about you, but I do. I'm sure you do too. That word of mine, I kind of look at That's where you live. Christ is saying, you know, live in me. We're, we're supposed to live in him. We visit the world every day, but if you start living in the world, I mean, just the very fact that you start getting overwhelmed by all the negative that goes on, it, it's hard to, I mean, I get cynical so bad that it's kind of like, well, what's the use of anything? Mm -hmm. You know, but uh, you have to come back and, and you abide. Don't, you 
go home, you go back and abide in Christ. If we come here, I need to come to church. Why? Because I need to get back and abide in that in that closeness that let's put me push the world away and start realizing, okay, wait, that's just the stuff going on around us, the turbulence and the storm. We're in the ark. You know, everybody in the there ark. Everybody in the ark, they were in the storm, but they were in a place where the storm couldn't touch them. As yeah. long as they were in there. So Do you suppose I never sang any in the ark? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I bet. I bet Noah wrote that song. Uh, maybe it's old man Noah built an ark like God told him to. Uh, but uh, it is difficult sometimes to. Uh, keep our minds centered on the things that are divine. And, and let's jump forward a little bit to when the church was established. What's one of the key words in the last section of Acts 2? You know, we, we read Peter's sermon and all of that. And uh, we know uh, Acts 2.38 a great verse. We know Acts 2.47, another great verse. Lord added to the church daily such as being saved. Those that were being saved were those who heard the gospel and repented and were baptized for the remission of their sins. We know that, those verses. But when you read the last few verses of Acts chapter 2, with what did those people serve God? All their heart. Well, all their heart. But a specific word, now it's not joy, but it's very close, closely related to it. What? Favor. Still not the word I'm looking for. Gladness. They serve the Lord with gladness. Did somebody hear say? Okay, I'm sorry. I told you I couldn't hear. <laughs> but... Uh, Verse 46, they serve the Lord with gladness. Now think about that. Most of, or a lot of those people had been involved in crucifying Christ. Some of them may very well have been out there yelling, crucifying, crucifying. They might have been, there might have been some of them in the latter part of Acts 2 who had been at the crucifixion and walked by him and mocked him and wagging their heads and saying all these derogatory things to him. But now they have a sense of gladness. They have every reason in the world to be joyful simply because their sins have been forgiven. And they now have hope. And they have seen come into fruition the kingdom that was prophesied by all the prophets in the Old Testament. And they're now a part of that kingdom. Now that'll give you joy. If you understand where you were, and what you were, and what the prospects were for eternity, if you stayed in that condition, then you got reason to be joyful. And you continue reading in the book of Acts and you will find example after example of Christians going through great adversity and yet you'll find somewhere mentioned 
a statement made about them, their behavior, their conduct, their actions, that reflects that joy and gladness. There's a whole bunch of passages to that effect. Uh, Paul in uh, uh, writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 3, and so many others that that uh, I have here before me. We don't have time to mention them all. But in the face of persecution, Paul said, you know, I have joy. He not only had the joy, he had the peace and he had the love that Jesus talked about uh, back here in uh, the book of John. Well, I had a little bit more that I wanted to get to and uh, we're going to conclude very rapidly the section that ends with verse 17 and next week I want us to look at verses 18 through 25 at the hatred that the world would have toward those who were followers of Christ. I think that was the first bell or was it the second? First bell. Okay. But uh, in uh, verse 12 he will say, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And, and we've looked at some of those things. And he closes verse 17 by saying these things. There's that these things again. These things I command you that you love one another. And as I say, have said repeatedly, and I want you to remember this, the apostles needed to have that common love. We sing that song at count sometimes. A common love for each other, a common love for the Savior, and so on. That's what he is urging them to do because there is a bond that is formed uh, when a group of people all love the same thing or the same one. That's one of the things that holds a family together. You ever notice that? Mama will bring them home, and she can hold them together. Dads have a role to play, too. But it's been said that home and mother are the two sweetest words in the English language. I would say, of course, that Jesus is the sweetest, and those next two or those other two <coughs> would then be very prominent, wouldn't they? Thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your comments and participation in the class. We hope all of you have a great rest of the week.